Hello, and welcome to our first little mini-lecture on Bradbury and his entire career. Um, so, as promised, over the last few weeks, I've been talking to my patrons and been promising that, you know, eventually, one of these days, we were going to have a vote on what our topic was going to be for the fall reading project. I presented some topics, there was a vote, and the ultimate decision was that we we're going to talk about Ray Bradbury. Um... But before we actually get into the business of reading Bradbury and talking about Bradbury, I wanted to kind of just present a bit of an introduction. Just A, because, you know, it's been a while since I've done a lecture and we're getting into the semester and that means things are going to get kind of crazy for me in the next couple of weeks and months. Um, but also just to sort of, like, explain in a little bit more detail what the whole point of this is. Like, what what is the goal? of looking at this particular writer at this particular time and these particular works of this particular writer. Um, as I emphasized in the, the whole Patreon discussion, uh, like when I introduced the, the five topics that we were going to talk about or potentially talk about that uh, the patrons could vote on, um, I emphasized that at some point I wanted to get into science fiction. Um, it's not something I've really had an opportunity to talk about in my podcast lecture series thus far, largely because nobody is paying me to talk about Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, Samuel Delaney, etc., etc., um, since this is kind of viewed as marginal literature, like not capital L literature, which is a whole thing in and of itself, which we'll probably come back around to at some point, either during this series or during this lecture. Um, but I've always loved science fiction. Like, ever since I was nine, ten years old, I got a kick out of reading science fiction. Like, back when I had these little illustrated, very abridged versions of the, the classic novels. My all-time favorite was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Like, I've always loved Jules Verne. I've always loved H.G. Wells. As I sort of grew up and, and sort of investigated the, the classic sci-fi of the 50s and 60s, I just fell in love with it all over again. Um, I've read my fair share of contemporary science fiction, and I keep up with what's going on in, like, the Hugo discussions and things like that. Um, I've always loved it, is kind of what it comes down to. Like, this is what I read to unwind and relax, and at the same time, I find that so much of science fiction informs my attitude, my outlook, and just my way of looking at the world sort of broad strokes. Um, and from what I understand, I'm not alone in this. Like, when I was doing my undergrad, uh, I was in, you know, a pretty big creative writing circles at a school that very much emphasized their creative writing program. Um, I was the head of the writers' union, and I spent a lot of time talking to people about, you know, their favorite books and what they like to read and what they like to write, usually based on what they like to read. And there was a lot of fantasy and science fiction. Um, contemporary literature is really weird because, on the one hand, like, what constitutes big, important books are kind of not the books that everybody's reading anymore. Like, anytime some major writer who is supposedly really important, like your Kazuo Ishiguro's or Jonathan Franzen's, you know, they publish a book, and yeah, you better believe it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list for a little while, but it's not going to, like wildly change the way that the culture exists. Like, when a book came out in the 40s or the 50s, when Hemingway wrote some new novel or something, everybody read it. It became a major part of the cultural conversation. People made movies about it. Like, it was a big deal. 
These days, that's not the case. Um, literature is kind of isolated. There are sort of existing fandoms around certain genres of literature. And even by genre, I don't mean what you would typically mean. Like, yes, there are people who like historical fiction, and yes, there are people who like exclusively science fiction, but there are also people who read books that are what usually gets classified as book club novels, like wine moms gathering together reading whatever Oprah has recommended most recently, and that's not at all to sort of, like, denigrate them. Like, it's its own thing, and some, you know, book club literature is really good. You know, I just finished reading Devil in the White City, which is really cool, and is definitely classic book club literature, in addition to being historical fiction, and is apparently getting its own, you know, streaming service series with Keanu Reeves, so, you know, who's, who's complaining here? Um, but it is sort of its own thing. Like, Literary fiction is read almost exclusively by academics engaged in perpetuating literary fiction. Um, but on the ground level, the thing that kids are reading these days amongst avid readers coming to college, it tends to be pretty hardcore on the fantasy and science fiction front. Um, I suspect that as many copies of Brandon Sanderson's new opus get sold as whatever Jonathan Franzen or Haruki Murakami have just written. Possibly more. Um, so I wanted to break into this. I wanted to start talking about this. I wanted to start, start talking about the merits of these marginalized works. One day I'm definitely going to do a whole lecture series on Tolkien if, you know, any Buddy is willing to pay me to do this, or if, like, the stars align, or if I just get enough free time to just do it under my own steam. Um, but, I can't do it now. Um, like, much as I definitely do want to do a lecture series on the Lord of the Rings and or the Silmarillion, and, you know, as much as this is the time to do that, because Amazon's getting very excited about their Rings of Power series, which... Eh! Um, as much as there is a lot of reason to sort of do that, it's not what I could afford to do now. I have a very busy semester ahead of me, and despite the fact that I was hoping to do like a full-fledged lecture series for this season, due to the fact that I had to do the Trojan Troy and the Trojan War lectures this summer, and the fact that my schedule is just absolutely bonkers this semester, I had to tone it down. So I wanted to offer a science fiction, fantasy, marginalized literature entry point in my, you know, options for this semester. And, you know, those other options included things like Plato's Republic, you know, classic philosophy text that we could break down in, in a fairly short time. Um, it included Luke Acts, like, let's look at one of the major gospel traditions. Let's let's talk about the Bible for, for you know, ten weeks. Um, but if I was going to talk about science fiction and fantasy, I thought to myself, okay, what where would our entry point be? What could I possibly do in a 10-week course, you know, just doing 10 lectures over the course of an entire semester? Who could I do without doing a whole lot of research, without doing a whole lot of investigation of traditions I'm not familiar with? Who could I theoretically talk about? And the original idea that I was kicking around was, we'll do the classic Golden Age guys. Like, we'll do a couple of novels by Asimov, we'll do a couple of novels by, by Heinlein, we'll do a couple of novels by Arthur C. Clarke. Like, those are the big heavy hitters from the, you know, like, 40s into the 60s. Um, they are considered the grandmasters of the tradition. Each of them have multiple Hugos to their name and, like, major awards and recognitions. Like, everybody goes back to Foundation, everybody goes back to Strange in a Strange Land, everybody goes back to Childhood's End, we should totally read those books. But 
the fact of the matter is, we don't have time to do that. Like, if I wanted to do a proper treatment of all three big writers and their big classic novels, we'd need more than ten weeks. So I thought to myself, all right, what do we do instead? And I've landed upon basically the same way that I got into science fiction. Let's look at Bradbury. Bradbury, I know cold, because I've been reading him since I was ten years old. Like, Fahrenheit 451 was a gift given to me by my, a friend of the family, and I have, like, read it and reread it virtually every year or two since I've been ten years old. Um, so I know that book absolutely cold. There isn't a whole lot of scholarship surrounding Bradbury, for reasons that we will talk about in this lecture for sure. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've read all of the works that I would want to talk about multiple times and feel comfortable just basically rereading them and talking about them off the cuff. Not a whole lot of research, fairly, you know, manageable oeuvre. Um, this is perfect for a 10-week course. So I put it on the list, and this is what we came up with. Apparently I am not the only one who thinks that fantasy and science fiction are fascinating and want to talk about them, so here is our entry point. Um, but that does raise some questions. Um, again, Bradbury is weird. Like, as I said, there's not a lot of critical discussion of Ray Bradbury, and that comes about for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, again, science fiction exists in this weird, marginalized space as far as the literary, scholarly world is concerned. Like, yeah, Fahrenheit 451 is a book that everybody respects, but it's not a book that a lot of people write about seriously. Um, Fahrenheit 451 falls very squarely into that, like, high school reading list space, where it's like, everybody knows that this is important, and everybody knows that this is, like, exciting and interesting, so it's totally cool to give to high schoolers and, you know, totally fine for them to read it. Um, but at the same time, like, it's straightforward. There's no hidden meaning to tease out of this book. Like, we'll just, you know, give it to 15-year-olds because it's something that 15-year-olds can totally manage. And then one day they'll grow up into real readers and we'll give them harder books like Henry James or, you know, Hemingway or Faulkner or something. Um, and that's kind of unfair. Like... The worth of Bradbury's whole body of work is more than most academics are willing to give it credit. Um, but even when academics are willing to give, like, science fiction a, a pass, when some, you know, famous writer actually does deign to talk about the world of science fiction, Bradbury's not usually the one they talk about. You know, everybody likes Kurt Vonnegut because he's got these major apocalyptic themes and he's, you know, got this sort of satirical edge to him. So, you know, there's depth to his works that we can talk about. Or maybe we'll look at Robert Heinlein because that's controversial and he's, you know, a self-identified libertarian. So, you know, maybe we can get something out of him. But Bradbury, Bradbury has always presented himself as childish. And that's a kind of loaded word to use here, like childish is usually a term that we reserve for, you know, saying nasty things about people, like you need to grow up, you are being childish. I guess Bradbury would probably favor the term childlike, which has more positive connotations. But the fact of the matter is, Bradbury is interested in kind of writing from the perspective of a child. Um, like, Dandelion Wine, one of the works that we're not going to talk about in any great detail, but which I did just finish reading because, you know, I felt like I should probably read that if I was going to, you know, spend ten weeks talking about Bradbury, and that's kind of the other major work. 
it's written from a child's perspective. It's written about childhood. It's written as a look at a child looking at the issues of mortality and death as they're sort of like coming into their own awareness. It is about a child achieving self-consciousness. But what's more, Bradbury frequently in his science fiction presents it very simply, very directly, and from the perspective of somebody looking up at the world and being astonished, being awestruck at what they find there. And that's a perspective that academia is also pretty eager to overlook. Like when you in fact get into academic circles and you start engaging with the, the sort of debate between George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton, who, like Bradbury, has a lot of those sort of awestruck, wondrous, looking at things from the perspective of a child moment, most academics see Shaw as the real writer and Chesterton as this you know, Johnny come lately who is just blowing smoke and is actually kind of conservative and gross. Which is also unfair, as you well know, I love my Chesterton, and he is no more racist than Shaw is, if anything it's quite the contrary. What I mean to get at here is that Bradbury is kind of a writer with two major demerits against him, as far as academia is concerned. First, he's writing science fiction, which we don't like. He should be writing serious books, you know, like Hemingway, like Faulkner, like Nabokov, like Saul Bellow. Um, but also, he's writing books that are excited and wonderful and, you know, childlike and sort of coming from this from this childlike perspective, which means he's not serious. He's not important. He can't be important. And that's bullshit. Like, that is five different kinds of total 100% bullshit. Bradbury's perspective and that childlike wonder perspective is something that is kind of really important. Yeah, it can get cliche. Yeah, it can be sentimental. And Bradbury does sort of dip into that sentimentality from time to time. But it doesn't change the fact that he's got a valid and interesting perspective that is all the more valuable for being overlooked. Like Part of the reason why Bradbury regularly ends up in the curriculum of high school teachers rather than you know college courses is because that's something important to high school teachers, like instilling a sense of wonder, trying to get students to identify and appreciate things that otherwise they wouldn't be interested in, in doing, like reading, like, you know, talking about big political issues, talking about, you know, the potential end of the world. That's really hard to do. Um, and while academics sort of poo-poo anyone who has to stoop to this level, you know, we're going to talk about sentimental trash in order to get the common folk to appreciate really big ideas, you know, academics tend to think, no, that's, that's too ham-handed, that's not subtle enough, you know, that's, that reflects poor, art, art, poor artistic craft. Um, you should be more subtle. Bradbury is never subtle, or when he is subtle, it's because he is hiding it behind the fact that he is also being like wildly overblown in other places. Um, Bradbury is subtle the way that a magician is subtle. The fact that they use all of the impressiveness of the act, all of the you know showmanship and, and big gestures to disguise the fact that they're actually doing something fairly sneaky and quiet behind you know 
behind the audience's notice. It's misdirection, in short, and Bradbury is a magician. He is also employing misdirection the same way. But what Bradbury ultimately has to show us, again, most academics aren't that interested in. Which is insane! Because the entire basis of academic pursuit involves this sort of childlike wonder. This sort of approaching a subject that you are in no way qualified to talk about and trying with your entire career to illuminate some small part of it, something that has been up until now hidden. Um, that's what study is all about. And any academic who is approaching their subject without that kind of passion, without that kind of excitement, is probably doing a disservice to the whole field, I suspect. If they don't care about what they've devoted their entire lives to studying, then what the heck are they doing? This is not like they're getting paid terribly well in academia. Like, sure, the every now and again you run across a professor who's making bank with publications, prestigious, you know, appointments and, like, impressive teaching credentials, but they are very much in the minority, and it is a kind of rare thing to encounter. So the first thing that I want to say is that Bradbury is worth studying. His outlook is worth studying. Um, maybe not from that, you know, hard academic standpoint. Maybe I will not get any fans, you know, trying to, like, make me any more than a pseudo-academic through this particular choice. But I don't really care. Bradbury is an important writer. He's one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century. He's got an incredible body of work. And for that matter, he's been writing for the better part of 70 years. Like, we're going to look at books written literally 50 years apart. And that's an impressive accomplishment for any writer. Like, it is the very rare writer who can successfully maintain that kind of output and that kind of quality for as long as Bradbury does. And Bradbury's whole philosophy informs every aspect of these works. Yes, the subtlety sort of wears away in his later works, and we will see, like, he sort of resorts to more of that sentimentalism, but the question that we should be asking ourselves is why? Why is this what he chooses to do? Why is this the trajectory he chooses to take? Why does he this writer who was established in the field of science fiction, choose to wander out of it as frequently as he does. That's what fascinates me about Bradbury as a writer. And man, I was heartbroken when I found out that he died a few years ago. Like, he really was something else on that front. Like, somebody who has no parallel in the tradition of American letters. Um, we are truly lost. Like, we have truly lost something valuable to us in his passing. Um, now, from a personal standpoint, again, I should emphasize, I love this guy for my own reasons as well. Um, again, Fahrenheit 451 is one of the first grown-up books I ever read, and I have returned to it often. It has been foundational to my whole outlook. Um, as I wrote about in my essay, in my decolonizing series, where I had sort of tackled racism in Fahrenheit 451 and in Bradbury's work generally, um, like, he's foundational to how I see the world, and I cannot talk about him without being a little bit biased on that front. Who I am is informed by what Bradbury told to me um, as a student of his writing, as an avid reader of his work. Um, on some level, that's because he was accessible to me. 
because he was writing at a level that I could understand even when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. His themes, his issues, his questions were things that I could appreciate even then. Um, but at the same time, I haven't grown less fond of him for growing out of that, so to speak. Like, where most academics sort of closet him, just, you know, shove him aside and say, okay, now I'm going to read serious things for the rest of my life, I've never felt the inclination to do that. Largely because, again, I think he still speaks to me. I think there's still new stuff that I'm finding in his work, even after reading it many, many times. And I want to talk about it. Like, I have often wanted to talk about Bradbury and found myself sort of unable to, because on the one hand, everybody who's read Fahrenheit 451 no longer considers it important. Like, it is just this thing that they had to read in high school and therefore, you know, like, forgot about it the moment that the test was over. Or alternatively, if they are an academic, if they do know this work, if they have studied it, they don't feel that there's anything left to say on the subject. It's too straightforward, too simple, um, which I, again, disagree with. But also, because Bradbury is this, you know, just wrote these two really important books, Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles, which we make, you know, teenagers read and then we're done with him, we also don't get to talk about the rest of his work. Like, I love some of his other books. I love a ton of his short stories. And there are a ton of short stories of his that we are not going to get the chance to talk about, which is a total bummer. But... I also want to talk about Something Wicked This Way Comes and Let's All Kill Constance and some of the works that nobody paid attention to because by then they had already sort of like written Bradbury off. He is, you know, that weird science fiction writer who doesn't know his place, who doesn't know what's good for him, who doesn't appreciate subtlety. Therefore, who cares? Why bother to keep up with what he's doing? So we're going to talk about that because I want to talk about that. Um, the five books that we are in fact going to read of Bradbury's, the, the curriculum for our little project here. Um, we're going to start with the Martian Chronicles because that is the logical place to start. It is the first big science fiction novel that he wrote and published. It is also a really great introduction to science fiction and to Bradbury's own work because it is very much episodic and sort of more a short story collection than an actual sustained narrative. It's got a lot going on. It was the place where Extra Credits kind of jumped into the science fiction boat after reading uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, like, I am psyched to talk about it. I'm psyched to sort of give my own, own take on it. It's a really cool work with a lot of interesting things to say. Um, so if you were wondering what exactly we're going to be reading for next time, it is the first half of the Martian Chronicles. We'll start at the very beginning and work all our way all the way to, hey, look at that, the interim halfway through the book, and then we'll stop and we'll save the rest for the second reading. Um, so first we're going to tackle the Martian Chronicles, then we're going to tackle Fahrenheit 451. Again, this is kind of the major work of Bradbury's, the classic science fiction dystopian novel of his, the one that everybody's read but nobody is talking about. Like, I definitely want to talk about it. It is, again, one of the most important works in my whole development and career, so by all means, we should definitely be talking about it. Um, and then I want to look at one of his short story collections, namely The Illustrated Man. Um, this is one of those that, like, it is highly regarded amongst Bradbury's short story collections, which, again, there are many. Um, but it's also just, 
like, it's rich, top to bottom. It is an absolutely wonderful little album as these things go. There's not a dud in the collection. Everyone is a banger. Um, so I want to talk about those short stories, which is something kind of different for this, this whole format, and I'm not entirely sure how it's going to go. Um, but yeah, we're just going to read a short story collection. We're going to talk about how wild these short stories are and the various, you know, themes that keep coming up in them. Like, The Illustrated Man is an interesting collection because it is sort of self-contained, and it does have its own sort of rhythms and themes and sort of preoccupations, I guess. Um, but it isn't, you know unsustained work. Like, it is a good album. It has a lot of different tones and a lot of different attitudes and a lot of different stories and a lot of different themes, but it is hardly one coherent work in its own right. Um, and then we're going to move off to the weird stuff. We're going to read uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, you know, his kind of seriously overlooked little, you know, quasi-pseudo-horror novel from, I believe, the 70s and 80s. Um, and then we're going to stop with, again, our super weird Let's All Kill Constance, his late-stage 90s detective novel. Because, again, I loved it when I first picked it up, and it is weird and fast-paced and awesome, and nobody talks about it. And that's an absolute shame and a bummer. Um, so I want to sort of approach these five works and see them as kind of representative of his whole project. Now, we're not missing a whole lot as far as his novels are concerned. Again, we're skipping over Dandelion Wine on this one, and there might be a couple others hidden in there that I'm not as familiar with. We are skipping a ton of short stories, though, and that's the real loss here. Um, again, one of the things that I want to emphasize about Bradbury and the whole sort of duration of his career is his diversity as a writer, his power over multiple genres, multiple perspectives, and how eager he is to just try things. Like, he is very much an experimental writer in his own way. He is never satisfied with sticking to a particular genre or a particular type of story. And anytime he feels himself getting stuck to particular narratives and particular stories, he usually fights against that impulse and comes up with something new. Um, it's not necessarily something brand new. He's not pushing forward, pushing the boundaries of any of the genres that he's working in, but he is always pushing his boundaries. He is always trying to grow as a writer, try things that he's never tried before. And he does, fairly frequently, make horrible mistakes. Like, that's part of what I love about him, is you can see his screw-ups. Like, you can see, you know, okay, we're going to try this whole new genre that I've never tried before, and it doesn't go well. Like, he totally misses the boat. Or he wants to talk about a culture or a perspective that he hasn't, you know, written about before. And he botches it, because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's super obvious that he doesn't know that he, what he's talking about. And on the one hand, that sucks. Like, A, you know, we, I wish that Bradbury was more knowledgeable about black culture the couple of times that he forays into it. Or I wish that he didn't know more about, you know, the Asian cultures that he's drawing from when he starts talking about the, the carnival freak shows and the, the sort of cultural appropriations that he seems to take for granted. That sucks that he's not more knowledgeable about this stuff. But I would rather see him try and fail. I would rather see him demonstrate to us how excited he is to write about these things than for him to just silence himself. And that's one of the things that really defines who this writer is. 
And that's, it's going to be difficult to talk about, honestly. Like Chesterton before him, Bradbury is one of those writers who gets enthusiastic about a lot of things, is very excited just from seeing a glimpse of a world that he doesn't fully appreciate. And he responds to that by writing about it. And writing clumsily, writing awkwardly, writing, you know, in a way that we would consider a cultural appropriation, in a way that assumes racist, racial tropes and stereotypes, in a way that isn't terribly well-informed, but does represent a sort of enthusiasm. It's something that defines him as a writer like it defined Chesterton, and as much as it is wrong-headed and we as a culture tend to poo-poo these sorts of efforts, it represents an enthusiasm that I absolutely respect and admire, something that I do in my own work, um, and probably will make equally bad mistakes about in my own work to boot. Um, but that's the plan here. We are going to jump in headfirst, the way that Bradbury did in all of his works. We are going to make mistakes, and we are going to screw things up, and we're going to possibly even offend people along the way. Um, Hopefully I won't offend people. I am going to try and be as, you know, sensitive in ways that even that, that Bradbury isn't. Um, but nonetheless, we're not going to balk at, you know, this is not a place that we should go. Going into places we shouldn't go is what writers do all of the time. You know, this is the equivalent of the 10-year-old walking into the construction site. Of course it's dangerous. Of course it's a bad idea. That's what 10-year-olds do. Because that's how you learn about the world, and because that's how Bradbury learns about the world. This is not sanctioning bad behavior, this is not encouraging people to be racist, and it's definitely not excusing people who should in fact know better, but it is an effort to sort of explore, to make mistakes and explore the universe and make art in the process. Sometimes it will be ugly, sometimes it will be wrong. And Bradbury, for the most part, will apologize when it is, or when he realizes that it is, and the rest of the time it will be up to academic debate to sort of figure it out. But that's what we're going to do. We are going to charge in, head first, into a place that we do not belong. Um, because that's how Bradbury would want it. Uh, we are going to talk about all of his works, and we're going to talk about the sort of lasting scholarly significance of these things, as well as sort of tapping and trying to understand the, the various things that drives Bradbury as a writer, since we are looking at so many of his works. Um, we're going to talk about the themes that recur, the ideas that he is concerned with, the, the things that keep him up at night, so to speak, both in the sense of, like, the big, you know, global issues that Bradbury is concerned about, but also the things that, you know, made him afraid as a kid and cause, cause, causes his writing to sort of re, uh, return to these ideas um, over and over again. Uh, we're going to talk about what makes this guy tick, what makes his writing work, and why it doesn't work when it doesn't. Um, we're going to talk about why he is, you know, revered in high schools and disrespected in colleges. We're going to talk about why I love this guy, and we're going to talk about why people frequently are uncomfortable talking about him. Uh, we're going to do all that. That's the plan. We're going to look at this writer's whole project. Um, and we're not going to look at, you know, a lot of his work. Again, we're just looking at a scant half, if that, at all of the things that we're going to do. Uh, but we're going to try and treat those 
you know, five books with as much respect and dignity as we possibly can and hopefully get something out of them. Um, I, for one, am really looking forward to it. He's, again, one of my favorite writers. I'm just looking forward to rereading these books all by themselves, much less talking about them. Um, and at the same time, I'm looking forward to sort of reading them all at once and appreciating this guy as a writer, top to bottom, um, start to finish. Um, I hope you are as well. So, again, this is going to be fairly disorganized as lecture series go, like from the bureaucratic standpoint. Yes, we are probably going to skip weeks. We're probably going to skip next week, for that matter. Um, yes, I can't guarantee that we're even going to finish the whole series. Like, again, I'm hoping ten lectures, you know, half of a book each time for five books. Um, but things may very well get derailed. It may very well be January before we finish. I don't know. Again, the world is just rather daunting to me at this point. Um, chances are we're going to miss next week. I'm hoping to be able to start talking about it again the week after, so hopefully we will get at least one or two lectures out of September and hopefully be able to pick up and be more consistent in October and November when things are a little slower on my, on my end. Um, with any luck, we'll get our 10 by the end of December. That's what we're hoping for. But again, I apologize if we don't get them out quite as quickly as I'm hoping. For that matter, I'm also probably going to do the occasional Assassin's Creed lecture when it's appropriate. Um, I am, in fact, coming up on the end of Assassin's Creed 2, and I am very eager to vent my opinions about it, so chances are that'll also come in interrupting at some point. Um, it'll just be disorganized this semester. It's also entirely possible that I'll be recording the occasional lecture just as needed. Um, all of my classes are in person this semester, but if in fact I have to miss class for any reason, and I already know I'm going to be missing class come the end of September, um, there's a decent chance that I'll have to record new material in order to keep my classes up to date. Um, I overhauled virtually all of my classes this semester. It was exhausting, um, or rather this summer. Like, in addition to writing the Troy and the Trojan War class, I also, like, dug my ethics class out of mothballs and changed it up for, you know, to match my new standards. I changed the readings and mythology and love and friendship. Like, it's going to be a weird semester. So just go with the flow, roll with the punches. Hopefully I will be able to maintain some degree of consistency in releasing lectures. Um, if not, just bear with me. We will hopefully get through Bradbury by January. If not, I will catch up in January. Uh, but we will get our 10 one way or the other. For next time, whatever next time is, read that first half of the Martian Chronicles up to the interim, and that's what the lecture will be on, so you'll be up to speed. Um, after that, we'll see. But whatever it turns out to be, I look forward to walking through this fascinating writer's career with you in the coming weeks. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. 
And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.